my name is Justin McClure, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Spooky Important Cinema Club. Woo! Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Why, I, I just did the sound of a door creaking open. <laughs> <laughs> and today we're doing. It gets a little less fun every year doing that. <laughs> yeah, we gotta find new sounds. We gotta like sit down and be like, all right, what can we do? What sound does like a jack o' lantern make? Should we do perhaps the Friday the Thirteenth like? Yeah, uh, but that's um, for, you know, after we're done recording, because we're talking about a subject this week and we're talking about specifically Nightmare USA, a book written by Stephen Thrower. How are we talking about a whole book, Will? I think this is one of our favorite books. You turned me on to this book. It's a book. <laughs> Wait, I believe that I sent you a text being like, Will, I found a used copy. Do you have one? I'll buy it for you. Yeah, and I was incredibly appreciative of that. I mean, it's a wonderful book. It's a book you can get lost in. It's it's an intimidating book, actually. There's so much in there. And that was one reason why I wanted to do this episode, because I wanted to like um, crack my way into the book a little bit more. The book, for those who don't know it, uh, it's by Stephen Thrower, a British film critic, and it is about American independent exploitation films from between 1970 to 1975. It's a huge doorstop of a book. He focused on mostly regional horror films. And you may be asking, what is a regional horror film? It's popularly understood as a low-budget, independent horror movie that was shot away from the Hollywood film industry. So not in Los Angeles, not in New York City. When I think of regional horror films, I think of, you know, A Cabin in the Woods in Wisconsin. Technically, stuff like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Night of Living Dead, those are regional horror films, but they are the famous ones. And what Stephen Thrower wanted to do was talk about the movies that aren't famous. The filmmakers that maybe they made one or two films and then they fell completely through the cracks. And when you look at the book, it can be really overwhelming because it's tiny font. It's beautifully laid out with so many illustrations, but you kind of read it and you go, oh, is this too much detail? But what you have to understand is that the way Stephen Thrower laid it out is that each chapter is essentially one or two filmmakers' entire lives. He takes one movie, usually as the focal point, to explore someone's entire creative journey. And it's fascinating because oftentimes there's no happy endings. And it's mostly stories of like what went wrong or how they succeeded in this one specific way and all the like points in between. And it makes great dramatic reading. <laughs> And for most of these people, or at least some of these people, this was their only movie. Maybe they made one other and then they were stuck in debt. They didn't get distribution. And, you know, Stephen Thrower found him in the phone book 30 years later and they're just living a normal life. And Thrower uh, admits that... The, this is not like a comprehensive study. It's not like really a chronological one. What interests him is just the movies that he found fascinating. And he wanted to just talk to the people that made it. And I think that's to the book's strengths is that it's not a completest volume, except on the subjects themselves. But it's just like the passions of the author that can take you through so many avenues that have never been explored before. Stephen Thrower is a critic who I like a lot. I think he's certainly the best critic I know who deals just in genre films. He's 
also written these enormous film by film books about Jess Franco and Lucio Fulci. And I think what unites a lot of his work is an interest in movies that seem to exist in a dream state. Thrower has talked in interviews about having abused substances when he was younger, and he seems to like movies that recapture a bit of that narcotic haze. You know, I actually feel a little dizzy myself right now because watching all these regional horror films, on the one hand, a lot of these movies look more real than most Hollywood horror movies because it's just regular people in their regular clothes and everything's a little dirtier and uglier and the surroundings are not very scenic. You know, it's a shitty cabin in a shitty woods. But they also have a similar relationship with the horror genre itself because everything is familiar but off. Like sometimes really off. Oh yeah, they don't move at the rhythm of a well-made movie, quote-unquote. And I think that can be a little bit shocking to people when they first see these movies. I remember when Nightmare USA was published and I started checking these movies out, I was like, what? This doesn't scratch the itch that I want scratched by, you know, normal horror movies. And it's only now that I can appreciate the stuff that Thrower talks about and the different kind of things that these films encapsulate and the very personal visions that a lot of them have. I mean, I recommended uh, for Will to watch Deathbed for this podcast. And Will's first reaction was like, ugh, Deathbed. And I think it's mostly because everybody knows it. Because Patton Oswalt did a whole skit on it in like his most popular stand-up special. Exactly. That is the only reason I knew about Deathbed. Deathbed, the bed that eats from 1975. Which... Not to be confused with Deathbed, the bed that eats people, which is what Patton Oswalt calls it. And, um, you know, he his whole comedy routine was about how, well, this is such a stupid idea for a movie. You know, it's about a bed who eats people. But you know, by golly, the person who made this movie, they actually got up every day and made this movie. And uh, there's something inspirational. I think one of his bits is he goes like, oh, and then the pillows eat someone. Oh, what am I doing? No, gotta keep writing. And that's a really funny idea about the creative process. But then when you watch the movie, you're like, oh, no, Patton, this is a, an actually like a fascinating take on a horror movie that isn't as dumb as you make it sound. <laughs> well, I thought it was going to be like Sharknado or something. I thought this is going to be one of those bad on purpose movies. But it is inexplicable i've never seen anything like it the plot uh, it's set at this crumbling manor uh somewhere in the countryside the manor is ruled over by this bed there's a man trapped in the house the bed has trapped him behind a painting on the wall he was the only one of his friends to survive the bed's attacks and he doesn't quite know why the bed has spared him but you know, he has a fate worse than death, which is to sit there in the wall and watch powerless as people come into this house and get consumed by the bed. The loose plot involves these three young women who come in and get consumed one by one, them and their boyfriends or their friends, uh, by this bed. And the plot doesn't move like a well-oiled machine. It's very repetitive it's even a little bit somnambulant, and I'm not quite sure how to convey the tone of it because it's hazy, it's very dreamy, it's funny, you know, on purpose even. Like, you remember that scene where the guy sticks his hands into the bed and he takes them out? Everybody remembers that scene, and he has, like, skeleton hands for the rest of the movie. <laughs> but it's beautiful, you know? The director talked about that he kind of approached this as a fable, and... Uh, one funny creative decision that he made is that he said he was watching soap operas when he was writing the script and he got the idea that like these horrible things were happening to these characters 
And in the movie, they barely react because it's almost like the weight of what's happening to them is so crushing that they can't even um, justify any energy to be like, oh, I'm missing my hands. Instead, they're just like, I'm missing my hands. Could you break one of my fingers, please? That would make me feel much better. (laughs) Yeah, and it's stuff like that where you see it and you think, is that supposed to be funny? And it is supposed to be funny, but it doesn't. This movie and a lot of the other ones don't quite hit the expected emotional beats. They're not a moment like that isn't punchline funny. And, uh, you know, there isn't there. There's never a real sense of catharsis in these movies the way that there often is with horror films like Friday the 13th movies, for example, there's a very like cause and effect tension and relief structure Uh, probably the best thing i would compare it to is like european kind of art horror movies because that's the kind of feel that it has a kind of almost uncanny valley like you look at it and you go oh this seemingly has a structure of something like texas chainsaw massacre bunch of kids somewhere they're not supposed to be even though that that place is actually just like a big warehouse where they shot the film and the film is essentially from the perspective of the bed which is like burping and farting the entire time and it's so funny you see so many shots of inside its digestive system this beautiful like looking through a fish tank of just yellow liquid as stuff dissolves or like a at one point a wine bottle just completely empties out in it it's not entirely from the bed's perspective though because there are layer upon layer of narration you know there's no real fixed point of view sometimes it's the guy on the wall sometimes it's the people who are visiting the place and part of the reason is because of course the movie was not shot without sound so the filmmaker is papering over some of the imperfections by having so much of it be narrated and there's so many things that happen in the movie that are definitely the result of a first-time filmmaker who doesn't quite know how these things are supposed to go there's a whole like middle section that just tracks the bed killing people through time that just stops the story dead to see a bunch of essentially like you know comedy skits of the bed eating different people yeah i would love to uh, stumble upon this movie at you know 2 a.m on tv well you know the story of this movie right which is that the director and writer george barry he made this film i think he had just gotten out of college with a bunch of friends he shot it in detroit edited it in toronto and he shot it around the distributors who just did not understand what he was trying to do and they basically shut him down and he just said well i guess this movie is not going to be released and he went on with his life until i think the late 90s maybe the early 2000s he was just looking at some like horror movie forums and someone asked hey does anybody know what this deathbed movie is and he's like what the hell and according to him at 3 a.m in the morning he found a review for a film that he made that he had never released anywhere can you imagine like the kind of like dissonance you must get when you find out that information yeah because this movie was released on vhs in the uk basically the distributor was like oh uh, can can you send us a print so we can screen the movie and they just went and pirated it yeah they cut out any credits and they just released it and not like it was a big hit steven thrower writes in the book about how like in the 80s in horror fan communities people were really into like you know the video nasties or cannibal holocaust because uh there was so much uh, government censorship in the uk in the 80s with the video nasties list that those sorts of movies were real forbidden fruit people wanted to people wanted to find the uncut faces of death or something like that stephen thrower wrote 
To notice Deathbed, you needed to tune your mental wireless away from the noisy gore frequencies to a stranger, more elusive position on the dial, in the space between stations where the shipping forecasts, foreign signals, and dream voices live. I think it was real big in Spain and uh, France, I believe. It was a French uh, movie fan who posted about it on the internet being like, who the hell is this George Barry guy? (laughs) And then George Barry commented, hey, that's me. I don't know how this movie made it out in the world. But it's out there now. Cult Epic just released a blu-ray like a year ago and it's all remastered as commentary with the director and steven thrower so now it has been cemented as something that is available uh, earlier today i checked out i guess one of the more accessible films in the book the deadly spawn from 1983 directed by douglas McEwen, and it was i think douglas McEwen's only film too this one feels more like i mean it's it's amateurish in some ways but it feels more like it exists in the world as i live it oh you yeah know? i love deadly spawn but you know the story of deadly spawn right i didn't have a chance to read up on it oh man it has an amazing backstory which is essentially that douglas McEwen was hired he like wrote the script by the special effects guy to make the movie and they clashed so badly that douglas McEwen essentially left the movie before it was done it was all edited without his involvement Involvement and then released and like he's like this is not my movie but my name's on watching it watching the movie i determine the good stuff to be the big gooey monsters uh so okay if anyone doesn't know the movie and how could you not know the movie if you're listening to this you must have seen the deadly spawn pop up in a photo somewhere i think it's one of like the iconic monsters it's just like a big old penis with a mouthful of teeth <laughs> yeah it looks a little bit like the audrey jr or the audrey 2 from little shop of horrors like it's this big yeah this big teeth monster with some tentacles that also have faces on them and it it shoots little little sperm monsters too and the whole film takes place in like a scummy looking new jersey house like (laughs) with a giant basement i would say that you know the special effects are really fun in it but douglas McEwen finds a really fun way to like implement the main kid protagonist who's almost like a proto scream like movie fan he's like he's a monster kid he reads famous monsters and he figures out how to take out the monster in the movie like he's not like ah how am i supposed to do this he knows how monster movie works and he approaches it in that way but at the end of the day, it's the big monster you remember. And this thing is huge in the movie. It's like this giant, like, latex beast that's constantly crashing through doors. It's great fun to look at the thing, and it just made me realize that it doesn't take a lot to make me happy in a movie, really. You know, if you got a big rubbery monster and there are buckets of blood everywhere... Uh, you know, that's that's good for at least two and a half stars from me. Well, what's interesting about the Deadly Spawn is that there was a sequ- a semi-sequel made by the guy who did the special effects. I don't have the title in front of me now. And that one is not as fun as the Deadly Spawn. Like, you really need that kind of threadbare setting and the kind of, like, tone to it to really make it shine. And I mean, like, while Deathbed is, like, nothing that has come before it, the Deadly Spawn is a good example of the Nightmare USA movies that are an extension of the people making it wanting to do their own version like they're the movie brats they're the steven spielbergs they're the george lucases but they're making monster movies with the very meager resources that they have and trying to expand upon it by making it violent like you're gonna watch a whole party full of old ladies be killed by sperm and penis monsters in this movie because i'm an adult and now i can put to the screen the stuff that i would doodle in my notebooks before we move on to another movie that we watched uh, i just want to ask about a filmmaker who is profiled in the book who i think you've investigated a 
little more than I have. John Hayes. That guy has an amazing career. Tell the good people about John Hayes. So John Hayes is a filmmaker that he started his career, you know, full of promise. He made a short film. I think it was called The Kiss. It was nominated for an Oscar. It seemed like the whole world was ahead of him. But then his filmmaking, you know, he was one of those guys that made like hot house black and white melodramas that essentially went nowhere. He was um, on and off again in a relationship with one of the Golden Girls. Was it Rue McClanahan? Yes, it was Rue McClanahan, who appears in a bunch of his movies. And, you know, he seemed like a guy, he was never interviewed in his lifetime, but he just wanted to continue making movies. And they just got more and more impoverished and more and more gross. And he almost turned into kind of almost like a Jess Franco figure. Vinegar Syndrome has tackled a lot of his movies but what's interesting is the place that i discovered him was through garden of the dead which is a really weird hour-long zombie movie that he made where like prisoners have to like fight off some zombies but it seems like john hayes has never really seen a zombie movie because the zombies are like afraid of sunlight for some reason which has never been so a they're rule. vampires yeah they're kind of <laughs> vampires and he also made uh, grave of the vampire which is a kind of infamous zombie film have you ever seen any of the vinegar syndrome films that he made like the cutthroat I've seen the cutthroats. That's the only one that I've seen. And it's fun. It's a it's a real cut rate army movie. Oh, yeah. He liked to make World War Two films about like PTSD that take place in Germany, but are really like a backlot in L.A. somewhere. Did he do porn? Did he eventually end he up? He did do eat, porn. Right. He did do a lot of pornography. Vinegar Syndrome has released a bunch of them. They released two of his softcore ones, The Hang Up. And I don't remember what the other one on like a double bill. He, reading about his career is so much fun. I don't know if there's like any great movies that I would do like hard recommends to people. Uh, one of them was released on one of those American horror sets that Stephen Thrower put together for Arrow Video called Dream No Evil, which is, I think, probably his most conventional horror film. But it also touches upon all the auteurship stuff. He is kind of obsessed with, like, siblings and childhood abuse and how that affects people. The thing is that as a filmmaker, other than Garden of Evil, Grave of the Vampire, Dream No Evil, he didn't really make genre films. He made, like, twisted sex melodramas, which are harder sells for people that are not Stephen Thrower or me and you. I feel like John Hayes would actually be someone I would like to explore in, like, a full episode because his life is so interesting and where it went. Like, he started his own company, Cloverfield, that would produce movies. I'd love to do it. Him. Yeah, we should we should definitely do that. We watched probably one of the ones that people are more familiar with, which is Don't Go in the House. Yeah, this is one of only two films directed by Joseph Ellison. It's, you know, you could put this in the long lineage of like Ed Gein exploitation movies. It's very indebted to Psycho. It's about a man named Donnie, played by Dan Grimaldi, who, much like Norman Bates, is still obsessed with his dead, abusive mother, whose whose corpse he keeps in his home. He hears her voice. Uh, there, in flashback sequences, we see some of the abuse he suffered. She held his arms over a hot, burning stove that left him permanently scarred. And this memory is constantly traumatic and triggering for him and it leads him into this cycle of uh tricking women to coming back to his house so that he can chain them up and kill them with a flamethrower and he keeps their charred bodies around the house and there are many scenes of him puttering around the house having uh long conversations with their charred remains and those charred remains 
are really gross. Like, when you watch the movie, the director was very particular in the way that he wanted to show all this stuff. It's essentially like William Lustig's Maniac in that there's no outlet. You're always following the killer and his demented journey. Like, Psycho, you have Janet Lee that you follow the POV for a while, and then you follow Anthony Perkins, and then you switch over to, you know, the other person at the end of Psycho. Uh, Vera Miles. <laughs> but in this one, it's just the killer, pretty much. And you are in his shoes, and it's just gross. It wants to make you feel uncomfortable, specifically in the one standout sequence, which is when a uh, fully nude woman is trussed up and lit on fire on camera. And I paused this and I went back and I played it a few times being like, how did he do this? Because on first glance, it looks really convincing. Oh yeah, it looks like she's on fire and it's not a dummy. She's covered in flames. And when you read how he actually did it, it's the oldest trick in the book. They did it with mirrors, which is the woman was trussed up and they shot like uh, probably a dummy in flames off to the side and they projected that image to form one thing so it looked like she was on fire. This is exactly the sort of movie that would have been a Siskel and Ebert dog of the week. I feel very confident about that. You went looking, right? To be like, eh, did they dog of the weekend? I did go looking. And Thrower writes about it. It's seemingly disinterested in turning its nastiness into Halloweenish fun. And I'm sorry, but I like that in a movie. It's a film I've watched so often, the name are nervous, but what can I say? Every time I see it, I'm struck by its powerful combination of violence, humor, and genuine creepiness. And I think that gets at a point where a lot of these movies, there is a weird mix of tones. They're they're not quite definable. This movie does have some funny scenes in it, much like how Taxi Driver has funny scenes. You know, there's a bit of that comedy of awkwardness with this very strange and diseased man trying to interact with the world. And all of these movies, I mean, this is one of the slicker ones, don't go in the house, but uh, there's often an element of like, intentionality or or a question of intentionality like okay this is funny but is it funny on purpose and uh when thrower writes about renee Harmon in the book he writes speaking as someone who's watched a lot of allegedly bad movies i know what matters to me i want to enter another world to visit somewhere new and i don't really care how intentional or involuntary it is well so renee Harmon, which will be the last filmmaker we talk about on this podcast because technically she's never directed anything but all the projects that she made she was very involved in and i'm gonna be honest she deserves her own episode but we want to touch and like wet people's appetites because the easiest way to describe her is she was her generation's tommy Wiseau, but she was much more productive than good old tommy yeah where is she so where is she from she has an indeterminate eastern european accent i don't remember i feel like thrower says it in the book but like when she talks it's it's like Tommy Wiseau where you're like, I don't know where this is from or, you know, where she got the gumption for what she did because she acted, starred and produced in a number of pictures. Uh, a lot of them done with the director of Don't Go in the Woods, who also made Lady Street Fighter. But when the horror boom was big, she starred and wrote and produced a bunch of horror films, including the one that uh, Stephen Thrower highlights in his book, Frozen Scream, which was a big VHS title. There was always like a cover of like a woman in bikini screaming, which does not happen in the movie. The plot, it opens with... <laughs> Good luck. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> well, there are certain basic, uh, mo- basic elements that I feel confident about. It opens with a home invasion and the woman wakes up in a hospital to learn that her husband has been killed by these strange 
black hooded people. They seem like cult members. She teams up with a private detective to find out what happened. And this private detective narrates a lot of the movie. Uh, We should point out that he narrates it seemingly at random, even when he's not in the scene. (laughs) Over dialogue as well, which I don't think I've seen in any movie before. And look, there are a lot of loosely connected scenes before she eventually learns the truth, which is that there are two scientists who kidnap people and turn them into zombies who they freeze in a deep freezer. Now, uh, this movie is a bit boring, but like all these movies, you kind of have to surrender to its rhythm. And what a rhythm this movie has. It really does feel like Space Aliens made it. Well, I think that the movies that we talked about on this episode are good examples of all the different flavors of like regional horror or the films that Stephen Thrower covers in his book. Deathbed is very intentional in its weird design. The Deadly Spawn is kind of an expansion of what the filmmakers liked when they were kids and were disreputable genres. Don't Go in the House is a digging down into the idea of something like Psycho, into its more disturbing aspects. And Frozen Scream is someone making a movie and just not understanding what they're doing. It's not meant to be as weird as it is. You get the sense that the director and Renee Harmon are like, oh yeah, this is how movies are made, right? But then when you watch the final product, you're like, what is going on? Everyone is dubbed. Oh my God. Like seemingly by people who could not watch the film (laughs) everyone's dubbed but everybody sounds like they're dubbing it from a different distance from the microphone there's like weird cuts to eyes and like dream sequences it's kind of like a slicker doris wishman it's like european doris wishman if you will yeah everyone's acting is very deadpan and monotone like almost everybody in this movie also has an eastern european accent which is which is fine but it's unusual to see (laughs) in an american film and there's also the musical score which is stunningly chintzy and irritating it's like a baby fiddling around on one of those little toy keyboards that babies have and it's endless it covers almost every minute of this motion picture you know when you talk about dream films deathbed is a dream film but it seemingly has a beginning and end like it feels like you drop into frozen scream and you're opening like a portal to another dimension and you're just screaming like you're watching some lovecraftian monster and at the end when the credits roll you just shut the door and that's it you gotta peek in there and you know you may want to keep going because you want to face death and insanity or you may be like that's not what i want i am definitely the former category a movie like this makes me realize how many elements need to be in place for a movie to be convincing if one element is off the whole thing starts uh crashing down but you know that's okay because i'd rather watch this than a lot of better movies i think at the same time something like frozen scream works for me because the elements are so askew somehow there were like a hundred puzzle pieces none of them were put together but they were smashed together and they make an image like it kind of looks like a movie there's sound there's pictures there's cuts but like a hammer went into it to put them together. Like this is not like Edward's Orgy of the Dead, which is barely a movie. It like it looks like a movie, but by someone who has never seen them before and someone just explained how they work and they're like, oh yeah, this is how it works, right? I don't know how stories, um, you know, are supposed to unroll. But you're right. It is very powerfully cinematic. Um, no other art form could produce this. Yeah, it's Godardian, you know, breaking the bonds of what cinema should be, what is expected. And Renee Harmon, just to like, you know, wet people's appetites. She was more famous for uh, having acting classes. She wrote a dozen books on acting, which is insane. Like if you're in her class, wouldn't you just be like, 
well, this person, <laughs> she is not a good actor. And she would use the people in her acting classes and they would appear in her films that she would produce. Before we leave this topic behind, I would like to leave folks with a little bit more Stephen Thrower prose. This is from his review of Last House on Dead End Street towards the end of the book. He says... It was the late 1980s, a time when we would seek out the most OTT movies to feed our own amphetamine psychosis. We'd be up three nights and days, and we're entering the fourth. 84 hours of wakefulness sustained by regular intravenous refueling, a perfect audience for the film's icy, arty antagonism. Speed shuts down your tender feelings, wires you to the harder, colder side of your personality, and when taken for long periods of time, fosters a powerful sense of social disconnection. Factor in the hallucinatory state that occurs when you deprive yourself of sleep for such a long time, and it's easy to see how a film like The Last House on Dead End Street can speak to your condition like some bubbling vileness from within. Doesn't that make you want to not only see the movie, but experience that? Absolutely. I mean, I love Last House on Dead End Street, and I've never been in any kind of uh, state like Stephen Thrower describes. You know the Vinegar Syndrome? I've been in contact with a guy for years who keeps promising them an extended version of Last House on Dead End yeah, Street. Yeah, I, I do know that they've been preparing it for a long time, and I also know that if you buy the Blu-ray of Corruption, Robert Roger Watkins' later film, a regular, just a scan of a grindhouse print is included as a bonus feature, like a, an Easter egg, so it's worth getting. Just put it out, uh, Vinegar Syndrome, and uh, give me a Willering. We would love to do commentary, even though I feel like we would have to fight off like Stephen Thrower, all their other commentators who would want to get in on that action as well. Last year, Justin showed Last House on Dead End Street as part of his 24-hour horror movie marathon at the Grand Girard Theater in Toronto. You showed it at midnight. And, you know, I don't think I'd ever actually been to that neighborhood before. And it felt great. You know, it was raining outside. It was dark, cold. Uh, I didn't know where I was. Midnight, so I'm falling asleep. And here's this this movie, this movie that feels like a scab. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Sitting there, I was like, oh boy, there's a lot of parts of this I forgot. <laughs> well, you were anxious because there was a child in the audience. <laughs> there was like a 10-year-old child someone brought. But I was later uh, told that the father, he made a deal with her that she would have to cover her head through like the bad movie. That Because I told him there was one that was pretty bad. And she did through the entire movie. But that means she was listening to it, which is worse. Because then you just imagine the worst thing could be happening on screen. The last third of Last House on Dead End Street is just like, a woman screaming. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, where she gets, oh yeah, because the most famous scene is her essentially being like guinea pigged, where like her arms and legs are chopped off in brutal detail on screen. Oh man, such a good movie. Fuck. Oh, I love Last House on Dead End Street. We did an episode really early on in our run about it, so go check that one out, because we talk about it in more detail. So I hope this infomercial for uh, uh, Nightmare USA has prompted some more copies to sell, because Stephen Thrower, he needs your money. If you flip to the back of the book, there is a tan Tantalizing list of chapters of what will be present in uh, Nightmare USA 2. But the book was published 10 years ago, maybe 15 years ago. It's been a while. I mean, that's a book that takes a long time to, to write. So yeah. to write. Yeah. And he had to crank out those two Jess Franco books in the meantime. So now we can get back to uh, Nightmare USA part two. So uh, we don't have any letters this week. Do no, we? they were too scary. We had to throw them in the fire. <laughs> oh, spooky. So uh, where can they reach us? They can reach us at important cinema club podcast at gmail.com. You can send us questions, comments. What are your favorite kind of horror movies to watch in October? Send us a line and 
and let us know. And you can also listen to me and Will talk about the horror movies that we watched uh, since, you know, the spooktastic season started on our Patreon episode. Uh, We just talked about what we've been checking out. Fun discussion. You can listen to it at patreon.com slash the important cinema club podcast that's right movies uh covered briefly include such classics as qb halloween captured for sex 2 friday the 13th part 2 and others <laughs> yeah you really want to hear will talk about captured for sex 2 <laughs> <laughs> uh and yet five dollars a month you can listen to that in our whole back catalog so next week we're going to be diving into the waters of the Japanese filmmaker, the kryptonite of the important cinema club. <laughs> I don't know if that's true. I think we're fine. We, I think we're honestly okay with Japanese filmmakers. We got spooked that one time early in the run because we did Seijin Suzuki and we ran out of things after about five minutes to talk I about. I don't remember what we've done Japanese. We did Ozu and I think we did a perfectly respectable job That's with right. Him. We did Ozu. That was like a real film 101. <laughs> Let me crack that Donald Ritchie book. But we're going to be doing Kia. Yoshu Kurosawa, a filmmaker I really like. Any opportunity to jump into his work is one that I relish. I recommend we should watch like the classic, right? Like Pulse, which is his like J-horror, you know, super one. We should probably check out as well, you know, maybe one of his weirder ones like Charisma. And I don't know if you want to watch his Oscar-nominated films or if you've seen them already, like Tokyo Sonata and stuff like that. You know, Kiyoshi Kurosawa has a big blind spot for me. I don't think I've seen any of his stuff. Yeah, it's not like Japanese filmmakers are a kryptonite or anything. So (laughs) that's what we'll be talking about (laughs) next week. And until then, my name is Justin DeGlue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Before we continue on with the episode, I'd like to thank some of our new patrons who include Annette, Mark Watson, William Love, Scott Morris, Dan Kapar, Garris Marley, Skandor Akbar, Brendan Murray, Colin Griffiths, Aaron Whiteley, Benjamin Noble, Patrick Kennedy, and Ben. Thank you so much for becoming patrons. We could not do this without you. And like we mentioned last week, the Blu-rays for Matt Farley and Charles Roxburgh's Don't Let the River Beast Get You and the Creature from Black Lake Blu-ray are now available at goldninjavideo.com. They are limited edition, so pick them up while they are available. Will, the theatrical experience is dead! (laughs) You know, I was actually thinking of maybe going out to a movie theater for the first time in seven months so I could see The War with Grandpa, but then they closed. (laughs) Wait, who directed The War with Grandpa? Oh, uh, Brian De Palma, Martin Scorsese, you know, (laughs) one of the people with whom De Niro has worked a lot, I assume. No, it's probably some fucking hack. Yeah, probably like Peter Seagal or something like that, who directed Grudge Match. I actually am a little curious about the war with Grandpa because, you know, I like the <laughs> Irishman so much and people say good things about the intern. And part of me was wondering, like, you know, is it possible that De Niro is doing some good work in these movies that I totally avoid? I want to fuck a horse. <laughs> I mean, Exhibit A, classic movie, classic scene. He's very funny and Dirty Grandpa. I think the guy who directed Hop, Alvin and the Chipmunks and Garfield, the Tale of Two Kitties can deliver the goods of the war, <laughs> the war with Grandpa. That's the one thing anytime someone gets excited about some like shitty property that's adapted and you look at the director and you're like, well, this is not going to be good. They've never made a good movie. And all those news websites are like, I guess we got to write about it anyway. You know, I just said all those news websites. I don't read any movie review websites anymore. Not one that I, I visit with any kind of regularity. You know what? Neither do I. There used to be sites where I would I would check them like just to check the news 
And uh, yeah, there are none. And wh- why is that? Why don't we check the news? Uh, because the sites don't exist. Because uh, they've been taken down. Like I would read the AV Club. Now it's a bastardization of what it is. The Dissolve was good. Too good to live. That is. Uh, never forget Ain't It Cool News. And I used to wa- read Burst Movies Deaths as well, but that was taken down because they were bought up by Cinestate and then Cinestate was taken down for being a piece of shit. I guess I get news from Twitter, right? Like, you know, if, yeah, if there's a big... it's all ironic and jokey, so, you know. If there's a big movie trailer or something, I see it there. But, like, sometimes they'll just fall by the wayside and I'll just miss it because, you know, the big announcement of Robert Zemeckis' The Witches, Robert Zemeckis is continuing a career of making movies that... Nobody really wants, but he's going to make them anyway. There are, are some hardcore Zemeckis tourists out there on film Twitter. Boo! There are some, there are, okay. There are some folks out there who love Welcome to Marwen. They see uh, classical oh, style in it or you. something like that. Uh, you know, I saw, you saw Marwen, I did right? not see Marwen. I did see Allied, and I actually enjoyed that one. I thought The Walk had some good stuff in it. I, you know, The Walk. Uh, I didn't like The Walk very much. I didn't yeah. like the first half of it, but once he, once he got on the tightrope, I was on board. What happened? I mean, we've talked about this before. To the Zemeckis that made used cars or wrote 1941 or even Back to the Future, back when he used to have fun. Yeah, I just don't I just don't care about him that much. Although I do think Who Framed Roger Rabbit is still pretty oh, great. Oh, it's great. I mean, he must live in a bubble, like a George Lucas style bubble at this point, right? Where everybody's like, oh yeah, oh, oh yeah, Robert, you're good, Robert. Yeah, you're making a good movie when really you're just making shit. Nobody cares. Well, anyway, The Witches, based on the Roald Dahl book, is going straight to uh, Apple. What platform bought it? Uh, uh, I don't know, Amazon, something like that. You know what's weird about The Witches? Is there's already a great movie that was directed by Nicholas Rogue. Well, <laughs> why would I want to watch the shitty CGI version? That's never that stopped anyone from remaking anything. <laughs> like, I heard someone say, oh, yeah, Robert Zemeckis is taking it in a really dark direction. It's like, yeah, I've seen that version. Nicholas Rogue made it. (laughs) Why does Robert Zemeckis need to do it again? I mean, it's not destroying the classic. It's just like, do we need another version of a Christmas uh, story that Jim Carrey is playing every role? Speaking of big movies that are going straight to digital platforms, I saw that Amazon bought the Coming to America sequel for over $100 million, something like $120 million, I think. Do they think there's that much money in a sequel to Coming to America? I mean, without, um, you know, the real mastermind behind that movie, John Landis, (laughs) how could it succeed? Well, it was going to be a big Christmas release, and uh, I guess Paramount has decided not to do that. I mean, the theatrical release of Tenet was an interesting experiment, wasn't it? Because it's made, I think, a little bit under $50 million now, and that basically has scared anyone away from releasing well, anything. Well, I think the issue with Tenet's release is that Tenet was a movie that actually made quite a lot of money on its like opening weekend. Not as much as... It made $20 million, yeah. which is like... Half of, yeah, what, half of what it would have made. made. And then it dropped a lot in the second weekend because word of mouse was bad. No one really loved it. And people didn't want to die going to a movie theater, which is like one of the main places that like you can catch the virus because you're sitting in the same room with a bunch of people. I mean, I'm not going to go to a theater, but I don't know if there have been any actual like evidence of transmissions at movie theaters. I don't have there? think there has been mostly because when you hear stories of people going to movie theaters, there's only like five to seven people in the theater because people don't go because they don't want to die I, I love looking at the movie listings though because it's all just exploitation movies now it's like in addition to the war with grandpa there's a liam neeson action movie out now there's that movie by brandon cronenberg you know just very junky looking that movie is definitely not playing in the toronto region because all our movie theaters shut down that's right they're gone for a month so i won't be seeing the war with grandpa <laughs> i know well hopefully it'll drop to vod or something like that you can pay 30 extra dollars on 
Disney Plus to check it out. <laughs> Actually, Disney Plus is throwing away that model because they're releasing the new Pixar film sold directly to Disney Plus, and they're not charging people any extra. I guess their Mulan experiment didn't work out for them. Wow, that's crazy. Mm -hmm. And I think that uh, the reason they're doing it is because no one's going to movie theaters. And also, no one's really that excited for Soul, it sounds like. <laughs> so, you know, that's why they're probably not going forward with it. I wish somebody would just leak the James Bond movie, you know? I want to see it. Yeah, you can be kind of bored at the super long movie at home. No, this is what they should do. Extend the James Bond movie. Make it a 10-hour film. Release it on Amazon in hour-long chunks. That's how you get people to watch a James Bond movie and to make it worthwhile for the producers. <laughs> That's our new hell, Will. That's our new hell. <laughs> <laughs>